Three, two, one. There are so many intentional decisions that I've been making throughout my career around how these paintings will exist in the space outside of my own. The scale is a part of that. I quite literally very early on was like, people are gonna have to make room for these paintings. Jordan Castile is a painter, a professor, a storyteller, a gardener, and my dear friend. This is a different kind of Jordan Castile interview. While we do get into the art things, I am so pleased to introduce you all to Jordy the person. You see, Jordan and I moved up to the same area of the Catskill Mountains in the same week. Fate brought us together earlier than this, but as life unfolded during this pandemic, Jordan and I found home in each other. This is a deeply personal storytelling session, and it is our season finale as we wrap this year up. It's been intense, and I love you all. Thank you so much for listening, and welcome to this session, one of my favorite sessions of Podcast Noor. I thought about making tea like 30 minutes ago and it always affects me. And I was like, I'm no, not you can, it. first of all, we can take pauses. Secondly, oh. you can 100% take pauses, but I love that you thought out your bathroom breaks. And also, I was prepared to like be here with you for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I like, I gave, I brought David chips and a drink and shut him in his studio and said, see you in two hours. <laughs> Don't come in here. <laughs> Well, I, I wonder if the two hours is going to be for this or it's going to be us talking to. We'll see what happens. But yeah, exactly. um, I just I put two hours in the schedule so that we can just be as open as we want. And then naturally, if it's a 30 minute conversation, it's a 30 minute conversation. <laughs> yeah. And if it's two hours, it's two hours. I mean, but I, I like it. I like the idea of shutting David in and saying, you have two hours in here and handing him like crackers and water and say, see you, see you at five. <laughs> wow. We're building up a lot of the intensity um, of this conversation right I just, now. So you I- know, even if we're just chilling at some point, like that's fine. I got two hours in my calendar with you. So this that's is perfect. Done. I love this. Um, up. This is actually how prepared Jordan and I are every time we have a conversation. We have- yeah, like probably obsessively prepared and like not prepared. Like I'm very relaxed. Like I prepared, <laughs> but I didn't prepare. You know what I mean? Like I, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Um, yeah. I will say that the – so. I don't know if I've shared this with listeners, but I I do a pre-call with guests before. And the pre-call that I had with Jordan was very short, sweet, and to the point. And I literally said, um, okay, so – and I came up with this on the spot, by the way. And I said, I think what we're going to talk about is you creating home in your new home and creating home in your people and creating home in your body and creating home in your work. And I think that that just kind of like, kind of like blurted out because I like associate home with you so much because not only is it because you live five minutes away from me, but also because I think when I was, we were transitioning into our home, which is so much more than just like the walls and the roof of a structure. It was like, 
are we settling, like are we putting roots into a, a place, a piece of land? Oh, this feels very interesting and weird and bittersweet and this process is so hard. And you you were like, I don't know, the, just the light in the process. Like your organized brain and ideas and being on top of things like – I can't, I just, I was like, oh, okay, cool. We were meant to do this at the same time for a reason. Uh, you know, at least I'm consistent. And um, I think <laughs> that in every sense of the word, like when you called and we were like, I think my first response to your team when we were setting this up and like pre-call, I was like, what pre-call? Like, I'll just like, I'll just like message her. <laughs> like, what, you know, like my first instinct was like, I don't need a pre-call. We don't even need to speak and we'll like know what to speak about. Like, I genuinely yeah, yeah, think yeah. I felt like... There's no pre-call necessary when it comes to you and I having a conversation because there's just like the call. There's just this like immediate connection that Mm. occurred when we found home together in this like new venture that like literally home existed with you and we like barely knew each other. And yet it like Yeah, that was the you know what I mean? That was the really bananas part of the whole situation. So we should give context to that. So basically, and I know that we haven't actually hammered out the timeline details of how we met because there's a little bit of confusion in it. However, like long spiritual story short, Jordan's mom planned an event that I was giving a keynote at in Denver, Colorado, and mentioned you to me as any mom with a daughter who lives in New York City would, and says, my kid is in New York too. You should know her. Mm-hmm. I got and that text I message said, on the other end too. <laughs> and were you like embarrassed? Were you like, did you trust that? Had that happened before? Well, I mean, now you've met my mother. So I think we could say that, That's yes, it's happened that. before. She's like yeah, okay, very great. much a mover and shaker and like a person who loves connecting people. Like she is the source of any desire of mine to like meet people. She's like, <laughs> I think I like people. And then I hang out with my mom and I'm like, she likes people. Like she loves people. And she loves being the person who like thinks of how to make things better for someone else. So she probably met mm. you and was like, oh my goodness, I think that Jordan and Nor would actually like really get along and they're kind of in a similar place in their lives and like they're having this attention, all these different things. Like they're young women of color living in New York City trying to make it happen. They should know each other. But what she didn't necessarily, like what she doesn't necessarily understand is like, yeah, New York is massive and we all so busy that like it's like um, I don't really, I barely have time for the people I do know. So like how do you just like infiltrate a new person into your life? So I think neither of us, like, we got it, but I didn't do anything with it. Like, I knew you existed, and I'm sure you knew I existed, but we didn't, like, do anything about it until the world Well, and then our friend, Prubble, who's a fashion designer, put together a dinner, and then you came up to me, and you were like, hey, just want you to know you're speaking at my mom's event, or you spoke at, I think it was. Yeah, I think you had already spoke. No, I think that I didn't. I think that that was the mix up that we had. I think you said you're, you are going to, but your mom and I had already, we'd already had that conversation. That kind of would make sense because her events usually happen in October and I felt like it was summertime when we met that time. Like we were outside and it was warm. Yeah, you're right actually. So it was a women's event. Yeah. Anyway. The women's foundation. So then we connected briefly and, um, ended up realizing that we both moved to the same place, same area in the same week. And that was kind of like, oh, okay. There are no questions here. Like it was just all meant to be. We came full circle 
and um, both like storytellers in our own right. And now we're here over a year into like what's been a really big life journey. And also I think for me personally, one of the hardest years I've ever had. Mm. What about you? Um, it has definitely been one of the biggest overwhelming experiences I've had in a very long time. I think what made it overwhelming was that I just wanted to be there all the time and everything else that I was doing felt more difficult, mm. if that makes sense. Like I, I found such joy and peace being in this new home that and like in nature that it's become increasingly hard to like be in the world in the way that I was before this house. Like whether it was socializing Whoa. in a very particular way whether it's like attending events, it's like where I'm finding joy has been totally thrown into perspective. Add COVID in the mix of all of that. And I'm just like, hmm, I just want to be in the garden. And this is really nice. And I love this. <laughs> and let garden. me just like call Nora out the blue and be like, what you doing? You want to go get like <laughs> me at like the farmer's market stands and like get lunch? Like, you know what I mean? Like where things feel more free and fluid than yeah. I think the structure of my life in New York City feel. Um, the mm. second I get back here, it's just like, you know, things are just being plummeted my way. Um, and I'm expected to show up in a particular way. And up there, I don't feel like I have to show up in any particular way, if that makes sense. Yeah. What has made it really hard for you? You can't, I'm not, you can't flip. This is not a two-way interview. No, but you I gotta can't ask say you that. Pitch. No, no, you okay. don't. I mean, you can't drop that. And like, but that's also <laughs> what's so beautiful about us is like, we said I for know. you personally, it's been one of the hardest years. And like, yeah, I'm, I mean, I think that we had, like, we just had a difficult transition. Like just the whole process was so intense of the move and fast. And then it was funny that, cause I learned about like certain um, health, like chronic health things that I didn't realize I was going through and I was going through. And also like you were one of the only people that I had known and intimately spoke, spoken to about chronic illness, not even knowing that like that was coming my way as well. Mm. It was just something that I was like, I always um, had not just curiosity towards, but I think anything that people go through that we can't see like we mm -hmm. can't see with our five senses or experience with our five senses and other people, something that I really care to understand because it's how we get to really know people. It's like how mm. we know, know a person is to understand like what happens on their insides. And sometimes it is more pathological or like physical or whatever. Um, so I think just a lot of transformation coupled together and then experiencing emotions and being able to name emotions. Like that was, mm. that's been a really big thing for me this year is like actually being able to have language to the feelings that I've been feeling. And um, while it's been very difficult, I think I've been able to maintain like a really strong sense of resilience. So like when something happens, now I like know what tools in my toolbox to use to be able to kind of push through that so it, it I mean it happens it, it is so fast and it's interesting because that like dichotomy of the city and then the mountains and being in like this fast place and this pause place mindfulness is like the thing that we really I mean have to constantly tap into and it's interesting to hear you say like 
you feeling like you don't have to show up a certain way because I think that your perspective on the world is so clear and you present it to us. Like you gift us literally your perspective on the world. Like these massive paintings that you put together that are moments of stillness and and mundaneness that we get to mm-hmm. celebrate and just experience with the the characters in your paintings who are actual people often. So like it seems like you still find a way to preserve moments and that's really important to you. Yeah, I mean I just I see you nor I like even as you just did that beautiful transition back to me, like the way you just like pinball it. Like, I think that this is, like, it's great. You're like, you're, you're, I think this, I, I just have to come back. Like home, I know we want to talk about my art, but like, like also I think our relationship is so not just about our work. It's about seeing one another. And that's what home is also in like a certain notion because I'm hearing you as like, I was just listening. Like, and you do this, beautiful thing where you can contextualize where you are and where others are in relation to you and how you your observation has like touched home but your observation and your talent is what you've been known for right and who you are and your soul's kind of like code is telling the stories of others right but then your story is like so like if people are really listening to you you're so deeply embedded in the story that you're telling. Like the thing that you and I are doing are not that dissimilar. Like we're listening to people, but we're also mm. using other people to reflect and process ourselves. You know what I mean? Like it's like the community around us is quite literally a mirror to the things that we're thinking and feeling and wanting to process on one hand. And we get to like also not entirely deal with it within ourselves by like projecting outwards. Like there's this like both and thing. Like, my therapist nailed me on it very early on in my relationship with him because he was like, literally, like, you paint people. Why do you paint people? And I was like, because, like, I care about other people's stories. And it was like, it kind of looks like one big, like, mirage of other people as a tool to, like, deal with your own life. And, and there might be some truth to that. It's kind of a sidebar. But as I'm, like, listening to you, I think there are, like, how we found each other was that there was a sense of home very early and we didn't have our work and who we are publicly in the way of us building home together. Mm. We saw each other in some of our most intimate spaces. Like you said, you were on a health journey. I've watched you in the past year and a half and your health journey. I've watched myself in this, my own health journey to like, I don't know. I just feel so, I'm, not answering anything you're saying, but I just feel really no, grateful a- for you. Yeah, me too. Um, because I do think part of the work is finding relationships like these where we can exist authentically um, in all aspects of ourselves. Like I almost put on mascara this morning. Like it's this is little stuff. And because I, I was like, I knew I'm going to be on camera with Nora this afternoon. And I was like, I don't need to put on mascara for Nora. I like, I don't have to. You know what I mean? And like, as soon as I open the camera, you're not wearing makeup either. I was like, yes. Like, this is exactly where it's like, you know what I mean? Like, this is exactly where I knew that we could be together. I may be wearing the same exact thing tomorrow when I see you. I probably will be too, quite frankly. Okay, great, great. And that is the point. I mean, wow. Well, thank you. And that means a lot. And I, I'm very clear on that being a huge part of my work is like, because my journey has always been 
I have always looked for myself in other people. And that's why I gravitate to people who are so, quote, typically different than me. It's because like, I love challenging myself and being able to find myself in everyone. Mm. And I've always, and I've found more pieces of myself in the people who society would say are my deepest polar opposite mm. than I have in the people who um, may share a lot more like typical in things in common. Yeah. And mm. so the work that I put out is that, I mean, I think that being a mirror and being ref like a, and reflecting what's around you and the people around you is actually something really um, special and important and, and that I'm trying to figure out if I believe this, but maybe it's like the most, it's, it's the most important thing. Like if we focus on wanting to cultivate like what's, a like being a reflection of what's around us and wanting that to be like our high, the highest version of ourselves, Yesterday I realized something and it was this thing that I, I started saying and I was like, what if, okay, I've been watching the matrix. Let me just admit this. I've been watching the matrix. Okay. And <laughs> I've like been binging the matrix the last few days. And a lot of the concepts in the matrix are really making sense to me. Obviously it's like a science fiction movie, but the idea of us being plugged into this like system and everybody being a part of this machine and pe like certain people having a certain level of consciousness or whatever. So then I thought to myself, okay, then what if, and then yesterday I was on a call with um, paying this medical bill that I thought I had paid, but apparently I didn't. And it was this whole like triggering thing because it was from an experience that was really, really bad back in May. And I was like panicking. And I was thinking of this customer service person who was on the phone. And I, I was saying to myself, like, you are my test right now. Like, you have no idea, like, what my, the context of my experience is. Mm. But, like, you are my test right now. And so is everybody else in your life. Everybody that makes you feel any type of way, like, they are playing a specific role in your life as a test to you. Oh, and by the way, you are also that to them. Like you are also mm. a test to them. So mm. like, cause I was thinking, <laughs> I had this realization a couple of days ago where my, this new, my new kitten has been like really close with Adam, even though it was supposed to be my kitten. And um, <laughs> obviously they're both of our cats, but like we got this cat because one of our cats passed away. And that was the one that like, was quote unquote mine. And, um, and then I joked around to Adam and I was like, huh, it looks like you have two cats now. And then Adam said, you know, like cats just like reflect, like they're a mirror of ourselves. And, and then I realized like, maybe I'm not emotionally available to this cat yet. Maybe I'm not emotionally ready. Mm. And like, I haven't been able to like show it affection because I'm still holding on to like the grief and feeling like, I don't know if I can get attached to this cat because I like, what if, I'm like, it, yeah. the same thing's going to happen. And then I was like, oh my gosh, I'm toxic to my cat. Like I, I am a toxic being to my cat. And then I thought, oh my goodness, maybe I'm a toxic person and other people, like maybe the people who I think are toxic to me, like I'm that to them as well. Like I've never considered that 
maybe we show up in people's lives as their Mm. test too. And so when I kind of like reframed all of this in my head, it gave me a lot more empathy towards like the, the people or the situations that would typically irritate me because Mm. it was, it was no longer a, this is happening to me and I'm like a victim in this. It was your soul is on this journey and is being tested with certain things so that you can reach a higher level of consciousness. Okay. So how are you going to handle these situations or move through them without it completely like messing your human body self up? Yeah. I mean, quite literally. It's interesting the word test though, because test brings up, I mean, as you're saying, it brings up all this anxiety. Like I hear the word test and I feel like I'm like, you know, in a room mm. closed and there's a proctor and there's somebody telling me, and I was always really bad at tests. <laughs> like I fail at tests. I'm just like not good under that kind of pressure. Does test me- I so- mean to you like right or wrong? Yeah. Like, or pressure. Okay. Like it's like okay. there is an expectation. And I think expectations are something I'm very familiar with. And mm. it's those expectations coming back to even when we began this conversation, like the expectation to show up in a particular way that like every moment or environment I'm in I think what you're talking about is a more like very internal kind of like test and struggle but I always feel this like I think it's internal external like maybe you're talking about both but what I'm I'm hearing is like I I have these like tests of my own growth or my like manifestation of self or my life experiences like these are opportunities for growth and something to come from this and it's a test of like me to like create boundaries or, you know, like a numerous things that can occur. And it's true. I think that is, it is like probably a test in some ways, like the universe is like watching. Um, but that I, I, I'm like trying to find a more like loving or tender word for what it is that you're describing. Mm. But that's my own association with the word test. Like, I don't think test is that's wrong. So it's definitely cool. right for no. you. But I am thinking... Like, well, I don't say right or wrong anymore either because I think I'm just like there's there is just I just don't think that there is a right or wrong. I just think that there no. is like it's just the test for me is internal and and the what we would typically see as passing or failing or right or wrong is more about in this moment, obviously, we're always evolving. So I may change my mind. But in this moment, the way I see it is the test is moving from victim consciousness, this is happening to me, to life happening through you Mm -hmm. or as you. And so it's Mm -hmm. literally just like moving up your your consciousness. That's it. It's like, and and where we are with our consciousness is always evolving. Like sometimes on days where, you know, we are anxiety ridden, it, it it's we know that feeling it's like shortness of breath tightness in your chest like just um the, just the jitters of feeling like everything is coming at you and you can't control it mm. but you try to control and that's mm. where things become very tight and constricted and small mm-hmm. versus taking a moment taking ex- an experience and like recognizing how you feel towards it and saying this is the emotion that i have this emotion is coming from this place. I'm looking at this experience objectively, realizing it brought up this emotion. And now that I've acknowledged this, I can give it some space 
and move through this because I've processed it and just let it go. And that's kind of like, that's where I am. It it feels like in the matrix when they have like those programs in them and they can just do all Mm -hmm. of the like martial arts Mm -hmm. moves. Like that's how it feels. So while, while I do feel like it's been very intense and things are constantly coming at my way, I feel like I'm able to like smoothly dodge things because I know how to process my feelings. Totally. And if you get hit, you know how to like bounce back, you know how to regenerate mm-hmm. or whatever it is that you need to do. And even if you yeah. don't, I think that's a part that's, it's not about failure, even if it doesn't happen, there are going to be instances where it's imperfect, right? Just because you've gained the skills doesn't mean you're going to dodge the bullet every time or whatever the thing that's coming your way. You're still, you're still a precious being who has the capacity to fall and stand back up. It's just knowing that when you do get hit, you can move again and trusting that process as well. It's not always about dodging, you know? Yeah, that's so true. Totally. What do you think, like, did you have like a big moment in your life where you had to like really not surrender yourself to yourself, but, I mean, the work that you do exerts a lot of energy. And then there are so many layers in your life where energy is very precious to you. And you have to like constantly protect it and recharge so that you're able to do what you want to do. Like when did you realize that you fundamentally had to like be more conscious of how you moved through the world? I mean – the first thing that comes to mind is my own diagnosis of lupus at like 18. I think that was the first time that I reconciled or recognized even that my body was not a, I don't know, a brick house that could like move through the world and be impenetrable that I was like, I wasn't, I I think I recognized my own mortality to some Mm. degree at that moment and understanding that, if I didn't take care, no one else was going to do it for me, that I was, I was in charge of my body. I was in charge of my mental health. I was in charge of like making the best decisions possible to whatever degree, whatever feels good for me. I'm, I'm in charge, you know, like I I have to control this domain, even in giving myself permission to do it imperfectly because I do it quite imperfectly. There are many things I could be doing that maybe could be helping that I'm not doing. There are things that I'm doing that could be making things worse. And I don't know that, you know, it's like, it's a constant ebb and flow. But I think that was the moment that I recognized that I had to exert a certain amount of control over my energy and actively verbalize to those around me what it, what my needs and wants were even to it's not the easiest thing. Like even this week I went to an event that I hesitated on and hesitated on and hesitated on to the point that I didn't even have a dress the day before because I was like, I think in my soul, I knew that I didn't have the capacity and got there and did the thing and had like almost a panic attack in the bathroom. It was like sitting between these like, you know, powerful people, smiling and nodding, having small talk. And I just was like, why am I here? A, I was really stressed about COVID. I knew that the, the boundaries were going to overstep what mine are. Um, and yet I still felt this pressure to like show up. So there's still, even in my years of experience, 
there's still times where I find myself caught between the expectations of others and what I know to be best for myself. Mm. And I still show up for others and not necessarily for myself. Yeah. And you're very conscious of it though, too. Like you're like even having that dialogue of knowing that you didn't have the capacity to show up and yeah, sometimes choosing to still show up. I mean, I totally relate to you on that. I had a moment like that last week too, where I like, was when I was in Italy had a a friend's event and right before I was like crying I was like I don't have it in me to see people like I just don't and it was because I ran into one of our friends who is this I mean she's just she's amazing and she literally looked at me and reminded me of what it means to be around friends and said Mm. I like I enjoy being in your presence even if you're completely silent and I would prefer actually for you to be silent tonight and just like let us enjoy you because then I'll I'll know you're healing and I was just like well that's like a bit that was that was like it was such a gift I literally have written about it I like have been thinking about it I've been telling her like how much I I just needed to hear someone say that and I didn't know I needed that but that feeling of anxiety that you're talking about like that I feel so familiar to is I think this expectation that a lot of people put on especially when you're a public figure or you and you are someone who celebrates and is celebrated there's this expectation to constantly show up almost as like this attraction for other people Mm -hmm. to witness Mm -hmm. right and I think that especially with artists the effect of that comes out differently in different ways and I think it's like where we see variations is the boundaries that people set. And you're really clear on boundaries. And and you've used the term boundaries like before I started understanding the concept of boundaries. Mm. So how, how did you develop boundaries in within a space that is quite literally looking into your soul, like into the most intimate parts of you all the time? <laughs> Um, I think it's a few things that have occurred over the like 10 years that I've been painting and kind of like came out of grad school and was in the New York scene. One of those was that from the beginning, I met people, I got invited to things and would like jokingly be like, haha, you know, I don't come out past nine o'clock. And like now quite literally, like, so at that event, Another person that I ran into that I haven't seen in a while was like, have you, have we lost you officially to the country? It's been like 10 years in the making. Like they've known me forever. I was like, I mean, probably. And he was like, yeah, I mean, seeing you here now, like I'm assuming you're going to grab dessert and like head out. I was like, yeah, I, I appreciate it in some regard that it's just like known about me, that it's like my intentionality about where I show up is very mm-hmm. clear to others. It's like, I am here for this thing. And then I will show all the love and appreciation that I can, but I will thrive and be my best in terms of my energy and what I can give others when I'm in like smaller, more intimate settings. So I think like way back when I was articulating to friends and peers, like that was somebody that I met back in grad school that like is now like in the art world and like very well known. And I was like the same person, which I Mm -hmm. really affirmed about, you know, like it was like, you know what, I guess I haven't changed much and that my boundaries are clear and I get to kind of step outside of them and 
surprise people every now and again. And that's like nice when I show up somewhere and everybody's really excited to see me. Um, and then I think as things have evolved over the years, I, especially as it relates to the painting practice, there is a certain detachment that has sort of occurred in my brain. As I have become more Jordan Castile, which is how I like view my public, like, like when I say my full name, I like immediately associate myself to like Jordan Castile, the painter, the Jordan Castile, the like the community, like representative and out here doing the dang thing and lover of color and whatever. And then I have Jordy and I have preserved the heck out of Jordy. Like, I think that is my boundary. Like there are some things that the Jordan Castile lovers don't all get. Um, but like you, like there are people in my world who like know me with my makeup off and know me when I'm sad and know me when I'm happy and that we've seen kind of like the whole spectrum that I can just show up and be and know all the family things that are happening, all the nuances of life and what mm. it means to be alive beyond me as a painter. I think my boundaries are really kind of clearly set around not sharing all of that with everyone. Like there's certain things that I wish people in that world sort of knew because it gets kind of exhausting to just be Jordan Castile at times. Like I, I you feel like a very singular being in those spaces. Um, and you could have like had something happen before you showed up to the event and mm -hmm. you're just like, everybody's like, how are you, Nora? Like, oh, and you're like, I'm great. Oh, it's so good to see you. And you do this thing and it's like, I'm good. It's so I actually good. never good. say I'm great if I don't feel oh, great. I cannot. I actually, it's like how. a thing. It's, it's not about, it's not about how it's about, I can't lie about how I am when somebody asks, no matter how, like, I don't care if it's like a business deal and somebody's like, so how are you? I will literally tell you, like, honestly, I'm, I'm going through a really intense time or a really rough time or whatever, because lying about that is, is more like takes more energy. It's more detrimental to how you're it, feeling. Yes. It actually makes you feel worse. And it's yes. not, and I'm confident enough in my answer that I oh. am sharing this not for you to fix me, for you to see me and then move on. Like, because I'm not, I'm not telling do people, you this. What and do this people is, know? It's, do they respond to like, what is the, how does that change others' responses oh, to the you response is literally <laughs> that I just gave you permission to do the same thing. So you're going to be just as honest with me, mm. whether like, your response is down. good or bad, like not good or, you know what I mean? Like whether yeah. it's more positive or negative, like I, sh you know, funny, I, I saw a friend and, um, in the same, during the same trip and same event actually. And when he asked me how I was, I shared that I was like struggling and he gave me some really like kind words of wisdom then when I asked him back he said I'm absolutely amazing I'm as and he was so happy and it made me oh. so happy and relieved that he didn't feel like he needed to make himself smaller because I wasn't feeling great because at the end of the day like I want I don't want you to feel sad to, like I don't want you to minimize your. Ha it makes me happy to see my friends happy. It's just about just be both of you living in your truth. E uh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And but so either way, 
what happens when I respond honestly is that I give space for somebody else to respond honestly too. Because I don't actually want, like, I don't mm. want you to put, exert any energy lying to me either. Like that, I have no interest in that. And I'm super oh, sensitive so to real. it too. Oh. Like I know when somebody says they're great and they're not great, I, since I was a child, I've always known. Like, and so it's just, it also, not in a judgmental way, but it tampers with my trust a little bit because I'm like, oh, I see this is where you're at right now. So like it doesn't feel like I would be able to be as open as I want to. And I always want to be very open. I mean, I think that's – I am terrified – maybe not terrified. Terrified sounds really, really dramatic. But it is very difficult for me in those instances of like highly social environments that I am kind of encountering people in social spaces but not in intimate spaces, it's really hard for me to bring my intimate self to the table. That's what I mean. Totally. Like I, I have a yeah, really yeah. hard time doing that because I, I have also had experiences where even if it's for an interview, right, like such as this, where I bring something intimately to the table and – this is, it's not such as this because you and I like feel safe here in a really particular way, but let's say it's outside of this context, but a context similar where I'm being interviewed for something and articles being written. And then all of a sudden this, like this, the one kind of edge of vulnerability that I offer gets then pulled apart or so detached from my truth and then republished as uh, like yeah. a fact. And I've had those experiences enough to like I think it has literally caused me to just be like, you know what? I don't trust you. I don't trust that my honesty is safe here because you also have the capacity, like not you, but like the people in the spaces. Yes. I think you're right that when people are honest, like when you're honest, people will match you in that. But then I also wonder like, then where does it go from there? It just like exists in the world. Hi there. If you find our work beneficial and you want to support how we build our company at your service, you can subscribe to my Patreon at patreon.com nor. It's usually personal writings and as I build a community on there, hopefully more. Your support is how we build. I also curate a weekly newsletter of all the things I'm benefiting from and enjoying that week. Anything from what I'm reading, watching, listening, buying, and more. Like most things, I keep it personal. You can subscribe to it at nortagori.com slash newsletter. Now back to the story. I love when we talk about this stuff because I know we're on like the same works, like on the same brainwave and our personalities are so different. We experience like the understanding of it differently. And I learned from this a lot. And I think that when like I actually don't think about what happens after I don't think about how I physically can't any I think it's been this like protective thing that I've done subconsciously where I move through the world and like pretend like nobody ever talks about me like if I have an engagement if I talk to someone and I have a conversation with someone and I move on like they'll never mention that conversation to anybody ever again it was just between us and now and sometimes I get hit with these waves of realization when it comes up I'm like, oh my God, wait, oh, I forgot. Like people still like they take this and then they can, they go and like they talk to people about the conversation and it's not, 
again, not positive, negative, good or bad or anything. It just is what it is. But like I've had to completely detach from that because I think that actually I learned this from Margaret Atwood said something about how as a writer, when you write um, and you publish your writing, it takes a complete life of its own afterwards. It doesn't belong Mm. to you anymore. And Mm. I mean, she wrote The Handmaid's Tale and then look at decades later what happened. Like it it took a life of its own. But so often like when we feel the need to control how people receive us, it's going to take a life of its own anyway. So I, it might as well just be authentic. And I think the thing about trust wow. and distrusting is like we can use our intuition to set boundaries. So if you know that someone, like if you get into an interview and you can tell like right away they didn't spend any time building trust with you, they're going into like the juicy stuff. You've seen that they've written headlines before that seem a little problematic or not how like very whatever clickbaity, like you can just you can think about that and decide how to show up and that is still on like you setting the boundaries like i believe in it's it's better for me to be trusting of everyone so that like they can feel like i trust them and therefore are more conscious of betraying that trust almost like I'm still processing this because I actually just read about I mean, it this morning. Sense. But like, I, oh, really? it just it yeah, I, it's this book, The Seed of the Soul, that I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna talk to oh, you yeah. about tomorrow. But um, yeah, um, yeah, it's like what I've it. yeah. So I totally. But you know what's interesting as you're saying that I'm like, I think that th- this again ties into my two different. There are two selves that exist here. I think mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. it is my the in terms of my work. I do have a lot of trust. Like I let that into the world. And I think my, I do not have a whole lot of anxiety about what people think and feel about the work. Like my ability to trust it, to enter the world and have like me. So are you more protective of Jordy? And it's like once people move past the painting. Yeah. Because I noticed that a lot of your interviews are very art centric. Like it's literally like you keep it about the work, but like the work is also incredibly personal. Totally. But I've also done a really intentional job of like sort of protecting that like more, like I said, like that Jordy, that like more intimate self intentionally. Like I'm very intentionally setting boundaries very often in those kinds of spaces because there are things that aren't, they're my story to tell, but I'm really conscious that people can fetishize my story or my loved ones, they can, especially as a black woman painter, portrait painter, like figurative painter at this moment, God help us all. It's like literally like everybody just wants to like, you're black, you're black, you're black. Tell me about your pain. Tell me about your like struggle. Mm. Tell me about your family and tell me about your legacy. Tell me like they want to know me and they don't want to know the work. So I spend a lot of time trying to get them to talk about the work because the reality is, is that when I'm making these paintings, I'm not thinking about the world. I'm not thinking about anything. Like I'm literally putting mark after mark down and (laughs) kind of contemplating if it like kind of visually feels off or not. And I'm like mixing colors, but I'm not trying to solve like society's poverty issue or like racism 
or mm. like contemplating my black body, my black, I don't know if I can curse, but I just did my black <laughs> self in, in that context. You know what I mean? Like I'm not, I'm not thinking about how my body's relating to the world because wow. it is my yeah. safety space. Me yeah. cleaning is actually the most meditative time in my entire life. When I am painting, that's all I'm doing is I'm like meditating basically and like making marks. So I think the conversations usually are centered around my art because that's all people have access to. And I, I, I haven't necessarily been the best at giving access. To, well, I do, but I don't. When I'm with people in person, like if I think about my opening at the Denver Art Museum and it was full of community members that I've known since I was like three or even before I was born because my mother is my mother in Denver. So like everybody knew of me before I was even born. And the interactions I was having were so authentic and honest. And I was like, kid after kid was coming up and I will give time. I will be honest. I will show up as myself and nothing else in those moments. In the classroom, same way. Like if I get people in front of me and if they want to know something, I will tell them. But I think when it's like press and they want to know, quote, I put air quotes around this, know something, I'm like, you don't really want to know. Like my intuition is just like, this is a thing. You're getting your like job done. Mm. Like we're doing this, we're playing this dance where I'm going to give you something and I'm going to try to like show up as true to myself as I can. Mm -hmm. But I'm also not going to, you're not going to see completely behind the curtain. Do you have similar inner dialogue when you find out somebody has bought one of your paintings and it is going to move into a new home? Is there still that sense of what version of me are you getting? Are you completely detached from the piece? Like how, what is the transition of that nope, relationship? No, that's the trust part. The painting, the painting, I completely trust. I have given it my heart and soul that it has been imbued with all of the values that I need that it is going to speak in the way that I need it to speak in the spaces that it's going to go into. So generally speaking, I mean, there's so many intentional decisions that I've been making throughout my career around how these paintings will exist in the space outside of my own. The, the scale is a part of that. Like I quite literally very early on was like, people are going to have to make room for these paintings. I love the idea that they were going to like go on these white walls in people's homes and like they'd have to hang these paintings that would be kind of too big for the space and like maybe move their site Twombly or whatever the heck they have, you know, however they've like prioritized things in their living space, they would have to make room for me. So that was like a really intentional decision I made when I like first came out of grad school it was like, I'm going to make big paintings and people are going to have to move over. And Is then that the days, why you made big yes, paintings? Yes. Especially because I was painting at, especially coming out of grad school, I was making paintings of black men singularly in the nude and I was dealing with a body that has been historically completely marginalized, sexualized, villainized, criminalized, everything has been given zero respect. And as a result, mm. if I was going to make those paintings at that time, I was going to make those paintings with a very clear, intentional kind of like formula in some ways. Like there wasn't a formula because their individuality was coming out, but the, the groundwork that they all were going to stand on was going to be on an equal playing field. And that playing field was, they were going to be big, 
and people would have to make room for them. And they were going to have gazes that looked out at the viewer so people can't look away. Like they're going to be in a space and they're going to be like, yeah, what's up? I'm here. You see me? You want to turn your back on me? I'm not turning my back on you. Like there's like, it's confrontational, mm. but also present. So that was another like really intentional decision. Um, what else? Were, what were some of the, I mean, the, at that time, I was also thinking about the way the bodies pushed against the environment. Like I wanted the bodies, like their figure to feel like they were pushing against the physical frame of the canvas. That Like the canvas was mirroring the constructs of society. I have since now fallen so in love with the environments behind the subjects and like recognize the relationships between our environments and the people that mm -hmm. I'm painting that the paintings have gotten even bigger so that I can represent more of the like space that they embody. Like I also have, I think through my own storytelling lens, I've, I've expanded my sentence structure <laughs> in some ways. I've given myself more tools to tell a story. Yeah, I so was just thinking about how I noticed that. I mean, you've been painting more environments in general lately. I feel like you've, I mean, specifically with nature too. But that's totally. also part of like your transition. Totally. Fine in the in woods. Life. And I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, look at that plant. I want to paint that. I love that. Ooh, look at these people I love, Adam and Nora. I'm going to paint them. <laughs> you know, like all those things can be. Well, yeah, because even when you were talking, even when we were like setting up the shot for the painting it was like you were noticing a specific tree or the, the color of the moss or like the mm. color like of what was happening in the background and it was like you're preserving a moment in in mindfulness and you're bringing color to it and and I love especially like how you color how you play with the color of skin is it's almost like the conversation of race like mm. that we have typically today feels too surface level to engage in like the way that you perceive race and skin color in your paintings because everybody's yeah, skin is made of multiple colors. Totally. And that was the other, that was, that's the, another decision that I made on my checklist of decisions back then was like, I was going to paint people of color. And as I look at my own family photo album, the way that blackness is represented and experienced is so vast that I never imagined black skin. I saw color as being a tool to engage the viewer in what blackness is and what it looks like or what it means to be a person of color, the perceptions of color as it relates to skin and the human body. Um, like there, like, I loved, there was a studio visit I had when I was at Yale where somebody came into my studio and was looking around and they were like, okay, so you're painting a whole bunch of black men. And then they were like, oh, no, actually he's green and he's blue. Wait a second. Oh, that's interesting. You just like caught me in my own thing. It was like, yes, like that was, that was the intention and continues to be is like subverting the perceptions of race and bodies um, through very kind of like subtle slash not so subtle gestures of like color play. I also just like love color so much that I, I literally throw on my table a whole bunch of like paint chips and I just start picking up colors that seem interesting for no apparent reason. It's not like the purple I picked up actually fits for any kind of like skin tone that's on hand. I'm just like, oh, this reminds me of this person's like energy. You know, like I am no color. Mm. I'm, if I, I have my own 
probably aura reading radar in my body or something. Where what I'm color like, am I? Well, you had these pinks. It was like this yeah. hue of like glow of a pink. As I said, that purple, like I remember there was a very distinct purple that I like, it's like a, it was like a pink purple situation yeah. that I saw and was like, yes, this is her. And I think that that was actually that. when I realized that, because it's not something that you can really see in photos. You have to see it in the painting itself. Mm. That's like when I started crying because I was just mm. like, wait, you took time to like create my skin in the way mm. that you see it. That was, I still like don't even know how to explain that unless you see it. And then when you see it, it's hard to believe that like human hands made this happen. I mean, I think, I think about that often with painting, like, but I don't know. Do you ever look at your hands and you're just like, how? Very frequently. I mean, I look at them and I think, thank goodness you don't get jacked up too often. I mean, I was in the garden last weekend pulling all these weeds out of the pool and my hands were so, like they hurt so bad. And it was the first time in a long time that I thought this could be really bad because I might have paintings to do. Like I, I think I fully recognize the, the power of my hands and the importance of my hands in that moment of being like, this is what feeds me. And like, this is mm. what like feeds others because it, you know, I have someone that works with me. Like this is the, the I got to take care of these things, but I still, I also don't understand it. My hands are massive. I have very long fingers. They've always felt really particular because people always notice them. And I was like ashamed <laughs> of my hands because they were so big and everybody would be like, Oh my God, your hands are so big. And I'd be like, Oh, you know, like, like, I don't know what to do with these. Might as well fingers. do something. Yeah. Uh, my parents probably thought it was going to be piano or something. Yeah, I was going to say piano or no? It's very musically challenged. Like, I think I just wanted to play soccer instead. Um, I definitely so then how – so then when did you pick up a paintbrush? I I mean, girl, when I was like three, who knows? I was always doing something. It wasn't just like a paintbrush. I had a pom-pom. I had a hot glue gun. I had a – scissors and some tape and some construction paper. I had a spoon that I turned into a mobile. <laughs> like I literally, I mean, tools were on hand for me in the process of making, even as I'm sitting here with you, like my hands, I have a hand problem in terms of their ability to be steady. Like I, I don't, they don't rest very well. So like very frequently I'm like holding something or making something because wow. I think they just need to be like in motion. And it's been that way since I was really young and I was always making like things. I was always making something, always. It was a corner. I was just talking to my older brother about it of like how happy I used to be in this like corner of our house where like I called it my craft corner. And I just had stuff to play. I had no agenda and I would just make things. When a specific paintbrush came in my life, I don't really know. In a formal way, as Jordan Castile, see, like, that's in my head. Like, as Jordan Castile, right. it came into my life in college when I took my first painting class, you know, um, when I was, like, That's wild. And, like, okay, so you're in your first painting class in college. When do you realize, oh, this is, this is like, a thing that I can do? Oh, I moved to, well, I didn't move to, I felt like I moved to Italy, but I studied abroad in Italy for six months and I took my first oil painting class and it was off of Cortona, which is the town that under the Tuscan sun was filmed. 
It literally overlooks this magnificent valley. We were at the top of this hill and this converted, this monastery that I am still convinced was haunted as I'll get out. I was doing very <laughs> weird things in my sleep that I've never done since. <laughs> like very concerning. But <laughs> I took my first painting class there and I would look out the window and like Gino would go down, he'd have his little car and he'd be like, ah, oh, ciao, Jordan, like, let's go get a cappuccino. And I'd like follow him down the hill. I, I mean, I had such a romanticized idea of an artist in that moment that I was like, and I was so happy. Like, I just remember feeling a contentment that I still feel when I'm like making work where I just felt like a sense of peace. And I came back and I changed my major from sociology and anthropology to studio art. Um, and I was a junior. So I basically like got out of having to write a thesis paper and just had to do a portfolio. I mean, I was also thinking about that because I was not trying to write a paper because I didn't know what my <laughs> sociology So the reason I didn't that know you're what, a painter now is because you didn't feel like writing a paper. Well, what's crazy is I went to a liberal arts school specifically so that I could learn to write and communicate. Like I knew that I always, I looked at art schools but I always knew that if you can write and communicate, you can do anything. That was like, that was my mentality at that time. If I can wow. communicate well and I can write, then I can figure the rest out. And that's sort of what happens, you know? Like, well, it's why like, did you feel like you had to go to school skill. for that? I didn't necessarily feel like I had had to go to school for that. I, what I had to do was get up out of Colorado at that time. I needed, I needed to exercise myself elsewhere. And college proved to be an opportunity to do so. It was like a structured, because I do like structure, a very structured mm -hmm, way mm -hmm. to like move on in my life. Yeah. What were you leaving? Um, oh, you know, I'm like, that's, that's, that's hard because what was I leaving? I was leaving a lot of uh, what felt like invisible years, if that makes sense. Like years where I felt pretty invisible in some ways in Denver. Um, and I threw that kind of feeling of trying to find myself. I was leaving behind that, that part of me that can fall into other people in their lives, that can like fix and cure and the caretaker, the like extreme empath that cannot find myself. I had to leave that to find myself. So it wasn't as much as I was leaving behind as I felt like at that time I was finding myself. Um, and I was on a very explicit quest to like figure out who Jordan was and what my likes and dislikes were that were outside of a context of just trying to like be copacetic like not create waves. Like I really worked at kind of being perfect <laughs> to whatever that meant at that time. Hmm. And some of those tendencies haven't lost, aren't lost on me still. Cause I do have that, but yeah, I needed to find myself. I needed to find my voice. I needed, I needed space to be on my own terms. And along that journey of trying to find yourself is that when you found Jordan Castile? Not until grad school. I mean, undergrad, on that journey to find myself, I think I was, I was very much Jordy. Um, but aspects of Jordan Castile were present there because I was making some of my earliest paintings of people in the community at Agnes Scott um, that I had 
kind of come to love and adore, whether it was Betty who worked in the, she worked in the dine, like as a part of the dining staff, but particularly like in the bakery section, she like always made baked goods and I loved to bake. And Betty and I like became thick as thieves and I made a painting of her and um, my best friend, Alex, like I was kind of, I began that process of using painting to deepen relationships um, and my relationship to the world. Um, but I think that, yeah, Jordan Castile emerged after grad school when I first started, uh, maybe even later than that, maybe studio museum. Well, it might be also helpful for you to explain who Jordan Castile is. Like when did you become, become her or realize, oh, oh, this is like new? Uh, when I was offered my first show in New York City, which was in 20, the summer, I think it was the summer of 2014. It was within a few months of graduating from Yale. Um, and I was getting all this like press about the show and there were all these people showing up that I had heard of and really admired, but like hadn't met such as like Thelma Golden at the time went to see that show. And that was very much a moment where I thought like, oh, like this could be a thing. Because what I had told myself when I graduated from Yale was that I would give myself a year in New York. I just told myself I'd give it a year in New York to try to like do this thing. I didn't really commit in a, in a, in a meaningful way because I didn't trust it. I didn't trust that a career could be made in the arts. Um, I just but for like someone who really time. loves structure and stability... Yeah, being an like, artist is an idiotic thing to do. Yeah, so so then what? That's like, why I had a plan. I had to like structure. What were you thinking? <laughs> I was thinking I'll go teach. I mean, I wanted my MFA initially so that I could teach on a collegiate level. In my head, it was it was always about teaching. Like I wasn't I was more Professor Castile than I was Jordan Castile in my head. Like I right. I have always loved kids. I have always loved teaching. I love being in the classroom. I knew that I had a I wielded power in that space and in, in, in the terms of like my ability to deconstruct power, like I, that my like superpower was the ability to like deconstruct the way that power exists in an institutional space. And I was like on a mission for that. Then like Yale was like, oh, you know, like, oh, like all my classmates told me that was bad at art, basically. A lot of- Wait, what? Did. That's a whole, like I was- not, I would not have been voted most likely. I probably would, in my opinion, you know, there could be someone listening who was in my class who was like, it was like, but in my opinion, the way that I was made to feel at that time was I was least likely to do much of nothing. I had classmates who didn't want to collaborate with me because they said that I wasn't ready yet. I, you know, I had classmates tell me that I was basically just like, you know, imposter syndrome was rampant because it was like how did you get here oh baby they literally call me baby jordan i mean there are all sorts of things we ain't got to relive all that because look at me now but <laughs> okay we don't have to relive all that but is that but also a part of, of that system like you're talking not about everyone not. has i mean it's a highly critique based system right like right, it's like right. everything's about tearing each other down but it's so i'm not competitive i'm competitive I'm competitive when I play Uno, but I'm not really competitive in life, like in life in the same way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And all my classmates were like, they're crumbs in the art world. It felt like everybody was in the pit, 
literally mm-hmm, there was a space mm-hmm. called the pit where we all would show our work and like in the pit oh all wait bets really were off. wow yeah, all bets were off i think they're trying to change the name of it now so that's nerve-wracking yeah you put your work up all your classmates are there anyone and everybody's invited there are guests visiting artists guests and they're just like that's not working that reminds me of a bathroom painting that's like you know so a yes bathroom it's like painting? definitely yeah i definitely got that too that was the wait is it a bad thing to be a bathroom painting you know, ultimately I decided it wasn't because it meant you want to look at it quite a lot during the day. Well, I was but just going to say, I have moment, one of my favorite paintings in the bathroom. Exactly. In the moment, though, I don't think they meant it that way. And I didn't necessarily <laughs> take it that way. But I came up out of it by thinking more logically in my terms, like the bathroom is a nice place to be. It kind of just it blows my mind, though, because how is it that it can be so, – it's like such a critical space, the art space and – clearly even within the educational system is such a critical space when the whole point of art is like also self-expression. How can you actually criticize someone's self-expression? Like where are you supposed to look at it scientifically? You can be self-expressive all you want, but it's going to be really hard to be in the art world and just be making squiggles and saying I'm good. You know, there are white men who've been doing that for a really long time. As I say that just make a squiggle and call it good. But generally speaking, we're not all given the privilege to like just be expressive and have our work exist in a This is the thing about artists, as I perceive them and myself. We, I would like to think that I am altruistic, that I, I am not thinking about myself. But every artist in some way is very centered on themselves. Like it's about, a, it's about my story and my way of seeing the world. It's like a very personalized perhaps selfish way of like being but even if through that selfishness something community-based builds but it comes from like a selfish kind of like instinctual drive to make something and to express ourselves I think we all have to see that drive through and the thing that I always tell my students and like anyone who asks me what I should be thinking about if I want to be a fame like how do I get my work in galleries it's like nothing happens without the work and your belief in it first like you have to like really push it and not be caught up in what other people think or feel about it even though I went to grad school in in graduate school settings it's everybody cares about what you're thinking or feeling and that's their job their job is to like tell you what they think and feel all the time And I think there's a certain grit that I gained from that, resiliency perhaps that I gained from that, a sense of like, okay, by the end of that program, I didn't care anymore. And maybe that was a gift, you know? Like I just was kind of like, well, it's not about me being great. So it has to be about me enjoying what I'm doing. What Mm. do I want to do? And how do I put that into the world? And I didn't expect it. I also didn't have any expectations. I didn't expect to get into Yale. I didn't expect to like have a show ever in New York. I was giving myself a year before I just like started teaching again. You know, like my expectations for myself were to just like get a job because I am very organized type A. Like I was like, I'm gonna give this like plan a certain chunk of time. And then if it's not happening, I'm not going to dedicate my life to like trying to be a, a, Jordan Castile. I'm going to try to dedicate my life to being Professor Castile who will always make paintings. You know what I mean? Mm. Would you, if you were to go back, would you approach it any differently or do you, would you do it that way again? 
knowing that you would become Jordan Castile? If I, well, so that's, that's, is that like, I would know at that point that I was going to become Jordan Castile? I guess like from the perspective right now, would you say like that was a really, that that sounds like a really safe route and usually for artists. I probably would have done it again. Because that's just also my personality. I'm very risk adverse. I don't like roller coasters. You're not going to find me going down a ski slope because it scares me to death. I'll be inside with the hot chocolate. I think my personality is definitely that. And in the context of like my life, but then within the immediate moments, I think I take a lot of risks. Like Mm. being an artist is a huge risk. And I still feel like the rug could be pulled out from under me because there is this constant noise of like, you're here now, but it's like, it's not guaranteed. Yep. You're here now, but like, you got to keep going. You have to keep showing up. You got to like, what, blah, 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 blah. Like you have to maintain, 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 maintain. It's like once you've made it somewhere, the conversation is constantly about maintaining something. And I think there has to be room for that maintenance to change and mm. for like what it is that we're trying to maintain to shift and ebb and flow as we shift and ebb and flow. Like, like you have an audience here, you know? And what does it look like to maintain an audience. I'm sure it's something you're thinking about, you know, like how to keep people, but maybe not. It's like, maybe it's not about maintaining their engagement, but the questions that you, I'd imagine you'd be asking and and kind of doing a podcast like this would be similar to me as Jordan Castile, not the person who's just like making the paintings. Once I make the paintings and everything else is about like, who's the audience? How do I get the work in museums so that the audience can be reached further? Who has access? What does accessibility look like? If these paintings are too expensive, how do I make posters? If I make posters, like, what does that mean? You know, like, then there's other things that come into play about accessibility and giving access to something, to people, access to us. Well, yeah, I mean, accessibility in art conversation is also, like, dramatic. It's it's like, the there's such polar opposites that exist within this space and whether it be a museum being accessible to a piece of a piece of work being accessible um to where the piece of work lives being accessible like how what are your opinions on what it means to be an artist in a very elitist industry? I mean, the event I went to was at the Met. It was the new acquisition, like it's like the acquisitions gala this week. And I feel like that that space was almost comically the epitome of like the elite art world. Like I walked in, looked around the crowd and was like, I literally chuckled because it was exactly what I imagined it could be be or would look like at the Met. Like it's just kind of like old money, people who probably, some of them own my work that I haven't had a chance to meet yet. Maybe I was meeting them. And if I think about how that space exists, my job and showing up, because I did ultimately show up, even though I didn't want to show up, I showed up and made the decision to show up, was that every conversation in that space is an opportunity in some regard to navigate someone else's opinion or relationship to me and the work and artists who are gonna come after me. 
and to have those conversations about accessibility. That if they say their job, that they're working towards diversifying the Met, then I say, well, diversifying the Met is just going outside. Like, it's like, you guys haven't done the work of just like bringing the outside in. And it feels like an opportunity to use the word diversity and not to like circumvent the work and the lack of work that has occurred for many years to get us to this moment. So bringing us to the room as black artists, all the, it's only like a very small part of the problem, like a very small part of it. It's, a, it's like mindsets and funding. It's like all comes back to money. Like the art world, that's a, the thing about elitism in general, it all comes back to money, capitalism. In many ways I'm participating. In many ways I'm trying not to participate and figuring out how to say, I need you, if the Met is going to acquire the work, how do we get it on view? A part of the terms of that acquisition is that it's gonna be put on view within a year's time. Like, how do I get you to guarantee that it's not gonna be put in storage? And in many ways, that's like baffling that I would, like, it's like, if you're in a position where you know you have some power, even though you've had no power for many years, and they're coming knocking because they, we need a diverse, you know, like all these things, then like, how do we ensure that the work is gonna be seen and have a legacy written about it. If something's gonna be written, I wanna have a conversation about what writers you're thinking about. I wanna have a conversation about the themes that you're considering. I wanna see the questions in advance. I deserve and I require a certain level of engagement that isn't just voyeuristic, but is on the same page. It's like inviting me to the table for real and not just using my likeness or what I mm. represent. Like. I think that's part of what I am always thinking about, but it's so difficult. There's so much work to do. And there's no way that all artists of color are a monolith. I think that the different kinds of spaces, I don't know how that will, I don't know how it's gonna break down, you know? Because even amongst the, there's an institution, then there's a gallery, and a gallery in Chelsea is very different than a gallery in the Lower East Side, which is different than a gallery in Tribeca, which is different than a gallery in Houston, Texas, which is different than a gallery. In, you know, like everything. Then there's tiers within each of those things that are exhausting to think about. <laughs> Do you have an ideal, like what your ideal world of art would look like? I've never been asked that. Um, I think because I'm so much of a realist at times, it's hard for me to idealize things or to like, hmm. I, it's like I see the thing in front of me and I just try to figure out how to work within what's here as opposed to kind of mm. imagining, which doesn't necessarily make sense because I am a creative, like I am imagining other worlds quite often, but I also am a painter. I'm not a, an imaginative painter either. Like I'm a painter who needs reference material. And a lot of that comes from needing to kind of like be present and like be with people and like of a, of a moment mm. but I would hope that this conversation about access like I think I would hope that access that there could be young people and I think it's sort of happening now because there are more diverse representations in the public eye of what art and art artists look like 
like look what the work feels like, what the people who are making it feels like, the stories that they're telling, the diversity of like voices even amongst us, whether it's abstraction or it's figuration, that we have the capacity to tell our stories on our own terms and there's a vast array of ways that we do it, that that just continues to be more accessible to young people. I think what's hard is that, you know, the art world and market is like so flooded that my fear is that everybody's going to be like crowding for the crumbs and that that just becomes like hunger games, <laughs> you know? Um, well, I think that hmm, there are so many attempts to democratize art. And one of the conversations around that is actually obviously the NFT conversation, which I'm not equipped in the language to have that full conversation I'm still learning about it but as somebody who paints physical paintings and is also keeping an ear out to this conversation do you have any thoughts you're ready to vocalize about what democratizing art could look like in that space I don't know if I'm fully equipped I think that it's a very interesting prospect and what I think is interesting about it is, as I was saying, like the way that the world is functioning and like the art world functions right now, I have a hard time imagining how it could be something else. But what an NFT is doing is it just like took the art world and said goodbye. And then a whole nother world was created. Mm-hmm. And I think in creating an own, their own institution, like it's its own space with its own set of rules and rules are being written as we speak, as opposed to like rules that have been written eons ago that like we don't even know what the rule was but it's manifested so it has like 20 different heads now and nobody knows which one is like the actual killing kind like this we I'm hopeful that there will be a certain amount of clarity that it offers that in terms of what the baseline is in democratizing like the system of financial particularly like the financial gains of an artist. What does it mean to participate in your own market? That an art market isn't kind of like a two-step prong thing away from the art itself. It's like the artist is choosing to be in a market very explicitly and watching and participating in its own gains or losses. Yeah. I think that that a lot of people... Mm -hmm. I don't understand it. Like I don't... I'm also not entirely sure what's happening in there. Hi, I hope you're enjoying the storytelling session. I just wanted to share something with you. If you're looking for a good deed opportunity these days, my family has been working to alleviate local homelessness for over 10 years. We have a foundation called I See You, and we make care packages for people experiencing homelessness. We make family food bags with food staples and give out grocery gift cards to families in need and more. Everything is done by donation and 100% of the money goes towards community members in need. If you'd like to donate, you can through Venmo at at ISY Foundation or PayPal to contact at ISYFoundation.org. If you or someone you know is in need in the D.C., Maryland, and Virginia area and could use our help, please DM on Instagram ISY Foundation or shoot us an email. Now back to our story. A lot of people don't 
understand. I would say most people don't actually understand how artists make a living or how traditional artists make a living. And when I learned about like the artist's gallery financial, it just felt like it felt like I was learning about the music industry or the entertainment industry where artists are actually only making a percentage. Is there, is there a traditional number? 50%. It's 50%. So you're actually only making 50% pre-taxes of whatever the sale is. And then the other discount applied. Yeah. Cause then oftentimes discounts are applied on top of that. And is there a reason discounts are applied? Yes. So oftentimes they're taking, museums are taking discounts because of their own funding and Mm -hmm. how they get funded or the kind of access to funds that they have. And they're oftentimes asking collectors to buy works and donate to the museum on their behalf. So then the collector is getting a tax deduction by gifting it to the museum. The artist doesn't get to participate in that tax deduction at all, um, but they do. And that's usually how like work gets in institutions. Then there are tiers of collectors who might have relationships with this very specific gallery that has you know, bought in depth of a particular artist and might say, you know, I want to continue to buy in depth and use whatever, wield whatever power they have and say, you know, I'd like a 10% or a 15% discount. So it usually ranges. And then every artist has a different deal with their gallery about how those percentages are split. Um, It's oftentimes 50-50, at a certain level, I think artists are allowed to negotiate that and can change like only 5% will ever come from my side or no discounts come from my 50%. Like that's something that the gallery has to absorb. Um, but those are all pieces of a contract or a conversation that occurs between the artist and the gallery. Um, but it is 50%. Does that make your head spin? Uh, yeah, because... Um, I think especially young artists, they can be taken advantage of in a really explicit way in early phases of their careers where their work is purchased for nominal prices. And if their career continues to build over a period of time and their prices increase on the primary market and somebody decides to put that work, um, but the primary market is basically like when a gallery sells directly to a collector or an artist sells directly to a collector, like that first purchase is the primary Mm -hmm. market. The secondary market is when a second exchange happens where someone has been paying attention to that growth of an artist and says, Ooh, like they were selling for $500 and now they're selling for like $10,000. I'm going to try to resell this thing in a way that equates to their new primary market price or above. And if it goes to auction, it can do a whole nother ballooning thing. And then they make that money. The difference, the, the collector benefits from they bought a work for $500, they're now selling it for 10,000. Their kind of gains are, what did I say? 9,500, 9, you know? And the artists, still only got that 500 and they pay taxes on it. Like they don't very rarely are they, if ever are they participating in the secondary sale of their work? That was the one thing in, about in America specifically. Oh, it's like London. That's... I think Europe or London has like 
somebody told me recently it has a different kind of role, but I don't. Wow. What they're because which is royalties. Ultimately, what we're talking about mm-hmm, is royalties, mm-hmm. which is similar to you know the music industry. Every time we stream such and such a song on you know whatever platform it is, they're probably getting a guaranteed check of a couple cents, dollars, whatever it is that they've mm-hmm. negotiated some deal with that streaming service to make funds from the enjoyment of other like other people participating in their creative juices or enjoying it. Yeah, that's the thing that has like been enticing to me to learn about NFTs specifically because it seems like there is that royalty component in it and mm. I mean at the end of the day one of the things that I'm always like curious about is how do we give credit back to the artist or the person who is making the work? How do we like support their work throughout? Because like I said about writing, it's with really any creative thing that you put out into the world like it's no longer yours to control, but what happens oftentimes is that people do end up finding ways to exploit it. And so it's like, how mm-hmm. do we protect the creative or the artist while that's they- I mean, like the young people who are coming just into it are the most at risk of that, of being taken, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Because you're de- you need the money. I needed that $500. They need that $500 because they're mm-hmm. like committing to their craft and they're trying to like make the next painting. They probably need brushes. Brushes are expensive. Or they're expensive. No, paint is uh, – brushes and paint. Very expensive. Yeah. Canvases, depending on how you're doing that thing, that's also expensive. I've been spending a lot of time but free painting. Not painting, painting, just like like painting See, as – Stop. No. Painting – what is painting, painting? What is painting, painting? Okay, can I tell you that I painted a bunch of these small canvases, just like little abstract paintings – and I'm raising money right now for the food pantry that we're opening or With that we opened. Paintings? No, no, no. Okay. So then I was oh. like, maybe I should, maybe I should sell these paintings, these cute little paintings as a, as a gift. Yeah. But then them I, or sell them. I got too, way too insecure. And I was like, I mean, they're literally oh. like, but, but I created the paintings when I was in the cabin for two weeks unplugged. And so they mean something to me. So then I was like, so is it also about releasing them? No, no, no. I would, I would love to give these away. Like I, it was just a release. Like I would love to give these away, especially if it meant contributing to the food pantry. But then I was just like, people are going to make fun of me. And then I was like, well, why do you I care thought you about were the that? one who doesn't care about what other no, people think I about. know. But then when it, be, when it came to paintings and you know what it is, it's like I tie <laughs> paintings to like, my kid self and so my kid self is afraid of being my like my inner child yeah we're in the same is place, afraid girl. of being yeah ultimately it's like jordy is the one who doesn't like people judging her jordy yeah. is the one who shows up alternative and is like doesn't trust nobody but see the, here's the difference showing up and trusting people i see what i was gonna say earlier me being all truth telly and honest with my feelings to just about anybody is very on brand for me. Like that's what people know me for. Like people know you for painting. People know me for like just blurting out my feelings like at all times. So when you do like the vice versa, like the painting part for me is like how you would feel like telling that's someone true. how you really feel. Oh my God. We're literally opposites in that regard. My mm-hmm. painting is the one place where I don't care. I'm like, yeah, goodbye. 
Yeah. And in your like public life, you're like, I don't care. In my public <laughs> life, I'm like, ooh, don't get too close. <laughs> like, I'm like, uh. Well, I have some like not so rapid, rapid fire questions after Aww. this big soul talk. Pew, 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 pew. Pew, pew, pew. I'm warming up. I'm warming up. <laughs> I got to get my matrix self ready. Do you have to pee yet? I got to get my matrix self ready. No, because <laughs> I've been sipping really, really slow. Like, I have a whole bottle of water, but I only poured myself this much. Oh, my goodness. Okay, okay, okay. So, first We're question. also driving up there right after this. So. Oh, shoot. Really? Okay, great. Oh, amazing. No, amazing. Yeah. No, it's a good thing. Yeah. Um, okay, first question is I didn't start. I didn't start the conversation out with this, which is what I usually do, but I actually wanted to check in with you after we had the conversation. How is your heart? My heart is in this exact moment. And you know what's sad? Maybe it's not Tell sad. me. You know, my heart feels sad in this moment because I don't always know how my heart is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's what I was like. Well, I don't even know. Um, I think I'm feeling really all over the place in some ways. Okay. Like I feel like settled but very unsettled is how I feel in my mm. heart right now. Like there are many things the that year. I feel really clear about. Yeah, it's like the end of the year. It's been a challenging or kind of like a real ride this year. Mm-hmm. And I'm in gratitude and I'm also in reflection. So Yeah. Wow. Same. How's yours? I know you're supposed to rapid fire me. Can we do them both back at yeah, each other? Yeah. Well, I'm my heart today is like really clear, calm and steady and it's the first day that it's felt this way in like a couple months. Yeah. Today is a like day. That. Today is like a tr- like a turn day. A day. It was like, oh, we were having and then I was like we're having this conversation today on purpose totally. 100%. Who do you paint for? yeah I'm doing a really bad rapid fire because like I think I'm supposed to just like say something but you're catching me off guard um not so who do I paint for I think that's evolved over time okay Um, who are you painting for I used to paint for myself who Mm -hmm, I'm painting mm -hmm. for right now is a lot of people that have nothing to do with me in some ways it's the people that I'm painting I'm painting for them wow uh it's the people it's Jordan Castile land. If you were to say, who am I gardening for? I would very mm-hmm. instinctually be like me. <laughs> but I think I'm in a state of confliction around what my career, like painting has shifted for me. Mm. Like it's my job now in a very explicit way. Um, and my wow. relationship to it has changed as a result. doesn't mean I don't enjoy it, but. I love that evolution. I'm, I'm more confused about who, who it's for these days. What is your favorite tool to use in the classroom? In the classroom? Mm-hmm. And it can uh, be a physical or a metaphorical tool. My favorite tool in the classroom would have to be pulling out a smile and a ju- good old joke. Like, I love a joke. when, mm. And even if it's like... A, a mom joke, like a dad joke. Like I definitely am not that funny, but I try so hard that that's kind of funny sometimes. And I think it's a great, it like breaks everything down in the Love that. and the like, Love classroom. It. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, uh, like I think I'm laughable. 
and they laugh <laughs> at me a lot. <laughs> and it's a good tool. That's it great. Helps. Laughter yeah, is an guys. amazing tool. What yeah. do you listen to while you paint? Crime podcasts. Um, That's great because the next question was, "What podcast are you listening to?" Ah, uh, crime podcast. Wow, you I really listen, listen to, to crime podcasts? No, literally, like literally, like I let me look at my phone right now because it's kind of depressing. Um, all the <laughs> things that are downloaded in here, and I think about it all the time. Like I'm making these really beautiful things about you know the world and like how beautiful things are and people are. And I have morbid. I have crime junkie. I have. It's a, more actually refreshing to know that you just do mundane personal things while you're painting mundane personal things that end up being oh, so yeah. magnificent. I wish I were even listening to politics or the thing. I do listen to the day. The first one I ever listened to is I listened to the daily. Give me like 30 second little bloop, like about the world. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. noted. I just got something about the universe. Um, and now I'm just going to like check out of the universe. Heck and yeah. If you were to ask me which podcast, like what the story was, I'd have no idea. It's a giant crime jumble up here. Everything's, everybody's died. That's all I got. Just be safe at night. Got it. That's what I've learned. Really contributing to that anxiety of yours, huh? Yeah. (laughs) 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 It's true. It doesn't, it doesn't help. I am a little jumpy, but I've always been jumpy. It is controlled anxiety. That's why. I think it also is soothing. I was listening to something on another podcast about like, People who listen to crime, there's like something soothing because you like yeah, yeah. detach from your own problems and like mm-hmm. listen to like, and you're like, oh, you know, like I. It's like how people who, I mean, it's like watching a scary movie or going through like a haunted house or something. It's like, totally. it's safe, but you're still utilizing that feeling that you are afraid to face totally. in real life. It's like control. And I hate um, scary movies and like whatever, whatever you, I don't even, a haunted house stuff. or a haunted yeah, house. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I, I don't like, I don't like ghosts. Like I told yeah, you, yeah. I thought there were ghosts in, in Italy and I wasn't playing <laughs> with that. <laughs> nope. What is your favorite creative pastime? What is that? Meaning what? Like me doing something? Yeah. What is like you, last week you were working on a puzzle? Like, do you, for me, that might be like reading and painting, but you also paint for a career. So I don't know. But painting could be your pastime if you do it too. Um, I, um, Sounds like gardening. Gardening. It's definitely being in the garden and doing a puzzle. Oh, you know what I did? I made a pom-pom wreath last weekend. Oh, that was, was so in the garden. cute. I was so, so pumped on it. I was like, I had an afternoon where mm-hmm. I just was like, David went on a 30-mile bike ride. And I was like, oh, guess you won't be gone for a while. See you later. And I got in the car and I drove down into town and literally was like, saw Michael's and was like, I'm going in. And it was the last, like, I can't remember the last time I just went in there with no agenda and just like came up with an idea while I was there and was like, I'm going to make a wreath and I'm going to make pom-poms. That's amazing. Took seven hours and my scissors were not good, but it was. (laughs) Only because my scissors were like. I, you, David you didn't go get new scissors? No, David said they were too tight, but he didn't tell me, like, he, he didn't know that they were too tight until I only had, like, 30, like, I was, like, on my last pom-pom, and he was like, what's going on with them? And then he just loosened them. He got a screwdriver and just, like, twisted it once, and they were like, and I was like, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> Seven hours. <laughs> he was like, he didn't tell me that they were, like, hurting you. <laughs> I didn't know you. I just thought you were, like, 
exhausted, but I didn't know it was the scissors. Your <laughs> well. poor hands. That's what I'm saying. Like, I did the most oh with my, my hands God. last week. They feel better now. I wore a wrist brace for a night. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I was just like, I was really scared that I had done That's definitely a damage. Move. It is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, okay. Favorite song to that. listen to for joy? Um, I wish I listened to more music. I don't know if there's a specific song, but I love like 90s R&B. Basically, you can give me any 90s R&B like, like, you know, Backstreet, not Backstreet Boys. What's the, the Blackstreet Boys? Blackstreet. I mean, like, <laughs> oh, you know, like literally <laughs> all of those, uh, 3LW, Brandy, uh, Joy. Instant. Amazing. I start singing out loud. I love it. And finally, what do you know for sure? that uh, I really enjoyed myself right now. I know that for sure in this moment. This was great. I had fun. And I really appreciate you. I appreciate you, like, making this happen in this way. Um, yeah, this is our I think it's, um, it's, season finale. And I was like, oh, this has to be, like, the oh, way that we snap. I hope it's good. Okay. Of course. What? Like- and it was just, like, it's, like, how do we bring an amazing storyteller and also somebody that, like, it's, like, more of a soul conversation to end yeah. our year consciously. I can do that. I definitely do those things. Checkbox. But I think you, you, do, you do that with me. I think it's we do it together is what happens. Yeah. For more Jordan Castile, you can visit her site, jordancastile.com, and follow her on Instagram at Jordan M. Castile. We are also building a community food pantry with our ICU Foundation. If you would like to join in this effort, we have a GoFundMe link in the show notes. Please also rate and review the podcast. It's a great way to show support and give feedback. I read each and every one of them. And as always, at your service. See you soon.